welcome to Blockchain Leaders Insights brought to you by Blockchain Ireland. My name is Laurie Kehoe, Chair of Blockchain Ireland, and I am joined today by my co-host, Paul Hearns. Paul. Hello. Um, as Laurie said, my name is Paul Hearns. I'm co-chair of the Events and Comms Working Group with Blockchain Ireland. And uh, I have a background in technology journalism and uh, I've uh, spoken to uh, a lot of uh, leaders technologists, things like that, and uh, hence me being here today. In today's episode, we're going to be talking all about Web3 and government. And no better place to have that discussion um, and no better person to have that discussion is with Mr. Barry Lowry, who is the Government Chief Information Officer with the Irish government. You're very welcome. Thanks very much, Laurie. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. So jumping straight in, Barry, we'd love to learn a little bit more about who you are and how you've ended up and why you've ended up in the role you're in. Gosh, well, that's a long story. Um, my previous role was actually the CIO in Northern Ireland. And uh, actually, Paul interviewed me. I think it was one of the last interviews that I did wow. in that role, and Paul interviewed me. Um, but uh, I got a couple of phone calls from people that I knew, um, one of whom was a previous CIO, and they said, this role has become available, and we think it's made for you, and you're made for them, so why don't you apply? And I did, uh, and I guess the rest is history. I, I came here um, in April 2016 wow. and uh, took up residence in Malahide and I've been there and in the role ever since Great. and love the role. Uh, it's a privilege to do it. So we're going to be digging into exactly, I guess, yeah, what does that mean? So day to day, you know, like, excuse the, my ignorance here, but what do you do? Okay, well, um, I guess my CV probably would say something like I'm the chief advisor in digital to government, but actually the office of the government CIO carries a number of um, very important functions, really covering three areas. The first area is strategic. So um, we wrote the government's digital strategy, Connecting Government 2030, um, and we had a role in the national digital strategy, and I sit in the steering group for that. Um, our second role is operational. So, for example, all government network services that uh, hospitals, uh, some local offices, government departments, etc., run on are all pr provided by uh, the Office of the Government Chief Information Officer. A lot of the uh, software is provisioned. Um, we were involved during COVID in the contact tracing app and then the digital COVID certificate. Um, and we're currently involved in things like the digital wallet, which I'm sure we'll talk about yeah. uh, as the interview goes on. And then the third major function of OGCIO is a high level governance function. And interestingly enough, um, when the Department of Public Expenditure, NDP Delivery and Reform, uh, and my boss is the, the minister for that department, Pascal Donoghue. Um, when it was set up under the Ministers and Secretaries Act, one of the things that Act did was empower the department and therefore by proxy my office uh, to be involved in the modernization of government through the use of digital. And so our governance role, we can approve uh, and sanction uh, public service projects. And in doing so, we make sure that they align with the national strategy and our own government digital strategy. So um, 
The other big area we're involved in is representing Ireland in Europe and OECD and beyond and trying to shape European agendas and trying to implement the outcome of those agendas. So uh, it's a great role because no two days are the same. No day is as you planned it. <laughs> um, no month is as you planned it. But, uh, you know, that's that's part of the role. And tell me, where where does Ireland stand or how does it compare to, to other European countries when it comes to, you know, uh, its digital initiatives at a, at a national level? Well, actually, it's formally measured um, by the uh, Digital Economy and Society Index, DESI, as we call it, which is an EU measuring tool. And what they do is they um, ma uh, measure the digital health and societal health of, of the country. Um, and that looks at a number of things from number of people connected to the internet to the number of people with basic and advanced digital skills to business uh, and finally government. So overall in the DESI Index, Ireland is fifth. Wow. And for public services, we're sixth. Um, we would probably score much higher for public services, but in health services, as everyone knows, we don't do so well. Um, so there's a real opportunity to um, step up there. And if we step up there, we'll progress right the way across um, the, the, the scores. Um, we have notable disadvantages in Ireland, and I think we do very well with those disadvantages. The main disadvantage that we have is that um, we do not have a people register. And that makes it very difficult to do some of the e-identity stuff. Um, we've managed to get around that through the creation of MyGovID, which is associated to the Safe2 interview and what's called the, the PSI data set, um, which is basically key information about us all, which have been validated. So most people would know that it's associated with the public services card. Mm -hmm. And of course, all the publicity that went around the public services card. But actually, the underlying use of that is critical because it's about a face-to-face -face, um, verification of your identity, which then plays into either a physical proof of your identity, in this case, the public services card, or an electronic proof of identity. And if we didn't have that at state level, we would really struggle to deliver on a lot of EU regulation, mainly EIDAS2 and the single digital gateway, which maybe we can come back to and talk about the importance of that. So if the opportunity is from a health perspective, we we up our game there, we should move up the ranks. Yes, and, and there are plans to do that. Um, I mean, the the previous head of digital innovation and health, Martin Curley, used to talk about the opportunity to leapfrog. Mm. And actually, that's, that's a, a very relevant thing. Um, a lot of the technical innovation that Europe have the, um, is very much based on an older technology. Mm. And so to move straight in, which obviously a lot of the stuff we'll be talking about today allows us to do to, to more progressed advanced state is a real opportunity for Ireland to, to leapfrog many countries. And who's leading the charge at a European level on that index? Uh, it's um, always the small countries. 
Um, Scandinavia does incredibly well. Um, so Finland, Sweden, um, Estonia and Denmark are superb. The Netherlands and Malta, they would tend to be the ones that we would look to. And, and Ireland's up there with them. Absolutely. But as I said, we don't have some of the same advantages. There's things that are unique about Ireland, actually, which I think should be applauded. Um, because in many other countries, the identity is co-managed by the financial sector or the telecom sector. In Ireland, our ecosystem is entirely developed and owned by government. And that does give people a real sense of assurance that their assets, their identity assets are being managed properly and um, managed in their best interests. Mm. And, you know, there's been a lot of um, misinformation or misreporting about the government's role in identity management. But just to give you some actual stats, which, which underpin, I guess, my position in this, which is it's much trusted. Um, Ireland is the most trusted country in the OECD with use of the public data in terms of use by government and government bodies. Um, that stat came out at the start of 2023, which is amazing because Denmark held this for years. Ireland's now overtaken them. Ireland is currently the fastest growing country in the world in terms of take up and use of an electronic ID. And actually the, the user feedback for the whole MyGov ID process, the safe to interview and the public service card and so on is very, very high. So um, we're in a good place. What we have to do is work out how we can enable members of the public to use that data set for their own use um, and make that legal. Because one of the reasons why the, the, um, the process is so trusted is it cannot be used by anybody other than a government body. Um, and if you think of, of the public perception of banking, for example, mm. after the crash, that was always seen as a positive. But we're now moving into an area where Ireland is becoming very multicultural, very diverse, especially in our sector. And people want to do simple things like use their government identity to open a bank or take out insurance or whatever. And so government can actually give them the capability to do that. And that's what we should be doing. And that's what we're striving towards. Super. Paul. <clears throat> what, uh, you're mentioning lots of things there that we can kind of take up on from this. Is identity, identity management, control, um, trust, all, all these things are words that swirl around all of the topics. Around. So I want to open the conversation by just asking, what's your overall view, given those kind of three pillars that you have in terms of, of your, your, uh, your role? What's your overall view of blockchain, Web3 and related technologies as you look to try and um, develop those capabilities and I suppose the, the next generation of government and public services? Yeah, like most people, when I first started reading about blockchain, I obviously thought cryptocurrency and, you know, um, Bitcoin and, and fintech and banking and all of those sorts of things. But as more people talk about Web3, they're all they're talking about a much wider picture, which in, includes artificial intelligence, Internet of Things. 
this idea of decentralization of assets. And um, for me, that starts to get really interesting when you talk about then how um, people use their identity for their own uh, purposes. Um, and one of the things that really intrigues me then, if we bring it into technical level, is how blockchain can play a part with other technologies and create the best ecosystem possible, not just actually to Ireland, because Ireland's in this because of this cross-border um, needs of, of Europe and the, the single market, but then not just Ireland and Europe, but globally, because Ireland likes to think of itself, and rightly so, as a country that has as much um, in common and as, as much relationship with the other in mainly English-speaking countries with, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, America, and of course the 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 the, uh, the other island, which is just just a, a few a few miles away, and the also inner course, island, as as we like to refer to it, yes, yeah, and of course it, it's it's very interesting because when Europe talks about cross-border services, the the main area of cross-border services for Ireland is with. Mm. Uh, a country that's currently in the UK. Mm. Um, so, you know, those challenges are, are very interesting for us as well because we've got to make this work not just as an EU agenda, but make it work as a digital actually improving all aspects of, of, of business mm. um, and all aspects actually of, of social life as well because, you know, how many people do you know have a relative that's in the other side of the border or friends or visited frequently or are visited by people who live very frequently and so on. So, you know, cross-border means something different to mm. us in Ireland. We've got to tackle that. We've got to work out what's the best way we can do that using technology. Mm. And in terms of, of utility then, um, the, the technical means of achieving some of those things, because I, I, I know you've, you've always um, championed this idea of you can tell a service once your entire information and then it's there to be used for adjacent services and things like that. So as you look at um, blockchain and, and uh, I suppose that that Web3 development encompassing so many of the other services as well, where do you see the utility for some of the, the, the challenges, but also maybe the ambitions that you have to deliver new services? Well, I guess we could start with where we actually are. And I mentioned at the start of the discussion that one of the things OGCO got very involved in was the digital response to COVID. Mm. And um, the contact tracing app was the first time that people got comfortable with this idea of a government provided app in their phone. And actually an app in which it was a two-way conversation, if you remember. You know, you could actually provide information back to government. And of course, the main thing was if you contracted COVID and you phoned the help de the help centre, they would have asked you to download the keys if you used the app because we had all these anonymous contacts and they were kept anonymous. It was all privacy driven. But it meant that you or I could be contacted and said, we think you've been in contact with someone who's contracted COVID. That mm. could have meant anything, of course, because you weren't given any more details, but it did actually work, you know, and we were able to um, show uh, proofs that this actually helped 
in, in the fight against COVID. But more interestingly, I guess, for this conversation, it got people used with this idea of something government provided on their phone for their own interests. And then the digital COVID certificate was the one that was a real game changer because all of a sudden government was providing data on you either having been vaccinated, uh, recovered from COVID, um, or had uh, later on a negative test, which you could use for the purpose of travel or even use for hospitality in, in Ireland. And so people get used to this idea that government can provide me with a credential, as we call it, and it lets me do things or approves mm. things about me. So that didn't just change our thinking in this, it changed Europe's thinking in this as well, because EIDAS 1, and EIDAS stands for the Electronic ID and Authentication Services Directive. Europe don't do short names. <laughs> um, but uh, EIDAS 1 didn't really take off, and that was because Culturally, Europe were in a completely different place. You know, Austria were trying to do things on phones. The likes of Germany next door were very much based on chip and pin, like our banking system hmm. would have been, you know, a few years ago. Um, but what AIDIS 2 started to bring up was this concept of a digital wallet and this idea of um, you carrying a government-provided asset on your phone and within that asset was a number of credentials and those credentials were proofs about yourself. Mm. So, um, for example, an obvious one, your identity. Um, if you were 16, 17, 18 years of age, how do you prove your age? Um, and, you know, we've always thought of, you know, in bars and so on, the guard age card, but it's not a particularly elegant way for a young person to prove their age. So this idea that you could show something on your phone that would have uh, uh, proof that you were over 18. And of course, the great strength of this approach is it's privacy enhancing, because if your um, child goes into a bar with a driving license, it contains far more information than is actually needed. Mm. But if they go in with a phone and the verifier shows their picture and over 18, that's a, you know, um, a minimum data set. It's zero knowledge proof, as, as we would say. Um, so uh, identity is the first one. The next one we're interested in is the whole idea of a driving credential because how many times have you left your driving license in the other suit or whatever? Um, so this idea, we, we all carry our phone all the time. Why don't we carry our proof of driving? And then that throws up, could you put your insurance certificate on it? So, you know, people get this very, very quickly and they get the opportunity around it and they actually get the security around it. So that all came out of this idea that we could take data and out of that data, we could create a QR code which could be downloaded onto your phone and that QR code could be scanned and that could be a proof of something about you. But as I said, the two real benefits, one very Web3 oriented, i.e. it's totally decentralized and government doesn't know that you've used this. Government's not remotely interested in how many times you use it, but it's also privacy enhancing mm -hmm. because you know it's only showing the person with the verifier the absolute minimum data set that they need to see for whatever transaction uh, you want to use. That, that's really a, a key aspect here is the fact that the, the, the user gets to make 
those decisions, that they have that control. And uh, again, as you said, it's, it's privacy enhancing as opposed to the, uh, the, I suppose, the pre-COVID fear of just, you know, having too much information about me. That um, it, it's, I think that's a really interesting change that I suppose the, the utility and the usability allays those fears and uh, in, enhances privacy for people. Absolutely. And this isn't, this isn't new ground for people. You know, we all started off where we realized that it was going to cost us an awful lot more money to travel in an airline if you didn't um, check in yourself and download your boarding car, card onto your phone. Mm. Um, and, and so people got comfortable with this idea that if you fly using Ryanair, you download the Ryanair app. If you fly the next time using Aer Lingus, you download the Aer Lingus app, et cetera, et cetera. And you could delete these and reload them again and so on uh, as your heart's content. And then, of course, we got into the whole ticket area. Mm. You know, and we all downloaded our Bruce Springsteen tickets and and they would only work once and, you know, all of that sort of thing. Mm. So people are quite comfortable with this and, mm. and, and, and they get it, you know, without totally understanding the technology. They don't need to. They know it serves a purpose. And one of the things that actually amazed me, this is a true story, that when um, things got better after lockdown, I was meeting a friend in the local coffee shop in Malahide. And uh, I was stood in the queue behind these two uh, senior ladies and uh, the girl asked them, had they got their proof of vaccination? They both whipped out smartphones. They were both scanned and lied in. And just as they went in, one said to the other, these are fantastic. You can go anywhere with these, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, the, the real message, apart from pride that we had helped create this, you know, the whole the whole message that said to me was people do understand a lot of this technology. If you make it very simple to use, very straightforward, very intuitive, they're quite comfortable with it. And one of the things we've learned about technology is that any user journey, it can and should make it easier mm. than the old way we did it before with paper and, you know, telephone support and all of those things that we had to do before. So I think the public appetite for this is is growing. And I think it's government's obliged to to try and move as quickly as um as they want us to. And so we're piloting now our own Irish digital wallet um, with uh, four credentials on it, with a group of policymakers who are feeding back. So we're not near, you know, release yet because mm. uh, the technology's ahead of the policy. You know, we have to make sure it's legal that this could be seen to be of equal standing to the paper certificate and so on. But the progress has been good. The, the, the pilot started just before Christmas. The feedback's very good. We're ironing out glitches and so on. And the really good thing is we're working with an Irish company. Um, and, uh, you know, we're very proud of that. You know, when, when we did the... Um, the uh, contact tracing app, um, we we worked with an Irish company and we actually released the source code of it and, and the spec. And it was taken up by several countries around the world, which which we were very proud of. So I think it, it, it really it really made a strong statement about Ireland mm. and Ireland's capability to play at the cutting edge of technology which is probably a good, you know, uh, example to use in this discussion because that's what you guys are all about. Indeed. A, a quick question. 
you're you're going through some complex material and concepts there, like you know whether it's even at a economic, commercial, but at a technical level as well. How do you how do you explain this to you know senior members of government and, and cabinet? Um, how do you go about doing that? They're not particularly interested in the detail of the technology. They're interested in, I guess, three main things about it. One is, will it work? Uh, the second is, is it safe? And the third is, is it intuitive? Does it provide a good user experience? And interestingly enough, we started this whole journey by not looking at tech technology. We started it with a program which we call the Life Events Program, which various government ministers have, have talked about. Um, but that came out of the design principles for government, or it was very much related to the design principles for government. So when we talk about a life event for birth or a life event for driving, what we're actually doing is getting people in the room that's had good and bad experiences of trying to deal with all of these things. Um, and, and we learn from that and we try and create then the credentials out of the process that that feel intuitive, that feel right, that they're comfortable with using. And it's interesting because something like the birth life event, we've started this journey with actually preconception because if you're a young couple and you're planning to have a child or you're hoping to have a child, you know, the first thing you're going to say is, well, does our health impact? If you, if the mother's diabetic, what does she need to take any special precautions and so on? You know, does she need uh, to be monitored more carefully or whatever it happens to be? So this idea that you're making it easy to follow this journey from that stage right the way through to preschool is the way government should have always worked. And now not worrying about the silos of departments and agencies and public service bodies and so on, but it's a joined up response to the needs uh, at a particular time. So we were talking about the driving license. If you if you look at where that's come from, that's come from detailed discussions, which has involved members of the public, the RSA, the Department of Transport, the guards, justice, you know, so um, that's the right way to do it, you know, and it, and it's great that we're, we're very much focused on that. But of course, out of that comes, well, you can say to a minister, yes, you know, the public response has been good. They're, they're, uh, they find it easy to use it or whatever that happens to be. Um, but also, you know, when we talk about hardening the application, you know, um, they broadly know what that means is you're putting it through really intense uh, scrutiny in terms of the security of it, the privacy of it and so on. Um, and that's just a process. I mean, anybody that works in the, the tech sector understands what that is. Uh, a minister understands it's something that needs to be done. They're not particularly interested in the detail of it, but they know if they bring in or if I bring in someone to do an independent assessment and it gets a green light, that's a good thing. And if it gets an amber light, something needs to be fixed. So, sure. you know, they know enough to 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 lead in this space. Well, coming back to, to, to the other side of that, 
what are some of the technical challenges that that you are facing? Because um, again, like utility is fairly unquestionable at this stage. Usability is something that you seem to have a, a good approach to, and as you said, you you start with 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 that in terms of 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 your criteria, but. Uh, in terms of the implementation challenges, like what, where are the the sort of stumbling blocks or pitfalls with these specific technologies? Uh, the actual detail of the specs and how it's going to work is is ever changing. Um, Europe, when when they embraced the IDIS two concept in the digital wallet, launched four pilots with four consortiums. And um, they're all using slightly different technical solutions. And out of that, they're evolving um, one recommended specification. Uh, so we, the, the team that I have and, and the partners that we're using, we're, we're watching that and we've built enough around our solution that we can flex it to mm. make sure that it goes whichever way Europe goes. But those final technical decisions haven't haven't all been taken yet. You know, things are being tried. You know, um, I mean, obviously, you guys are particularly interested in blockchain. Um, my interest in that is, well, is this going to help enhance the solution or is it not? You know, how do, if it is enhancing it, how do we do it in the most efficient way? You know, you you will be much more familiar than me with all the the truths and rumors about blockchain and mm. how it's used and how it's deployed and is it are we going to be consuming much more energy and you know all of those sorts of things. But what we try and do is try things and say, okay, this works, and then if we can do it this way and align it with the EU standards, then that's probably the way that we'll go. So it's like any technology, you know, it, it constantly evolves and you might add things and so on. And then of course, out of that comes, well, what actual products mm. are we going to use as well? Mm. Um, and we're, we're, we're very open, you know, to try things. We've worked, we work a lot, you know, I mentioned who, who are leading in this space in terms of actually in this area, the most advanced countries are um, Ireland, Belgium, Denmark, and Finland. And we're all actually working together. Austria are pretty good as well. And we're learning off each other and we're trying things and so on. Mm. Um, so, for example, Finland are getting involved in some of the security testing of our product um, because obviously, ultimately, we want them to trust it. You mm. know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 uh, um, it's very exciting. How it's moving forward. I have to say, I don't, I don't really get involved in the technical detail anymore. You know, I think my my technical expertise died when they stopped using, <laughs> you know, COBOL mainframes. You know, <laughs> but uh, you know, so yeah, I I understand enough of the detail, but I'm not the person who could do the design anymore or, or really mm. get into some of the choices. You know, I trust others to do that for me. Well, no, it's good to hear that the the. The technologies still lend themselves to those kinds of approaches whereby you can have multiple perspectives all aiming for the same kind of outcomes, but uh, as you said, using potentially uh, different approaches to see what, what works best. So it's it's good that they're not such outliers that it 
you know, just requires a, a complete sea change. So I, I suppose that's reassuring from both uh, an efficiency and a progress perspective. But uh, kind of zooming out again, uh, you, you, you've related a lot of what we're doing to personal experiences and kind of common individual things. So from, from a sort of citizen, from a, a consumer point of view, what would you like to see coming from these technologies in terms of, you know, just making life easier, making interaction easier? I think actually as a consumer, I'm probably not a lot more advanced than the average consumer. And I think we all want the same things. You know, we all want usability and we want a sense of security with the ecosystem. And uh, you know, one of the big debates about blockchain and crypto and so on was all about governance and regulation and control. And, and I have to say, you know, as a consumer, I always feel safe when there's a standards body underpinning something or, or the central bank says it's okay and so on. And I think that's one of the challenges for disruptive technology is how to go enough mains, mainstream that uh they can be trusted and people can be comfortable with because I'm sure, you know, when you open, you know, the technical sections of our own papers and you read, you know, um, some of the, 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 the stories in it about whatever cryptocurrency or blockchain or, you know, your particular areas of interest, you're thinking, well, hold on a minute, that's not 100% right or there's mm. two sides to that and so on. But of course, that impacts on trust as much as, um, you know, similar type stories about what government was doing with people's data and all of those sorts of things. So I think it's really important that we work together and we build that trust. But just going back to consumer, you know, the examples that I gave, you know, like everybody, you know, I had to download the concert tickets on my phone. Mm. I had to download the boarding passes on my phone. I had to become comfortable that a phone would contain lots of apps that you trust. Mm. You know, and um, because I'm, I would travel a lot, you know, one of the very first apps that I downloaded was um, the TransferWise app, which I love. It's fabulous. And of course, what happens there is you load money into that and then you can spend that money on the fly. It's got a, you know, a, a, a debit card associated mm. with the app and you can spend money in different currencies and it just, you know, um, converts as you use it. So you're not carrying, you know, mm. pockets full of different currencies and so on, depending on all the places you've been. But I, I learned to trust that because actually through a government meeting, I met the guys that set up the company and I liked them and I trusted the product. And I must have been one of the first users in Ireland of that particular uh, application. Mm. But it works. And it's the same way, you know, why do people trust Revolut? You know, why do people, it it, it starts to just happen, doesn't it? You know, mm. we, we have the need and, and we trust the ecosystem around, you know, um, uh, satisfying that need. Mm. And, and it's no different even than the traditional banks, you know, whichever bank you use, you're probably using their app. No, mm. more than yeah. more than anything else. Mm. Uh, what was your tipping point? <laughs> you know, yeah. when, when did you when did you feel comfortable with this in terms of your own capability to use it properly, but the whole security ecosystem around it and so on? And that's evolution, mm. um, you know. And 
I think there's a, a really important point as well you're touching on, Paul, um, and that is, you know, we're we're launching an innovation competition. It actually launched just before Christmas. And the first stage of it, which ends at the start of February, is public service bodies bidding for financial support from the government to do these innovations. But then we're going to turn these problems over to the industry. And why are we keen to do that? Because that's how government learns. You know, um, I'm sure any of your members are doing work in a different sector altogether. And you're thinking that would work for government. Well, what we want to do is put the problems out there and let you say, we believe this will work for government. Mm. And so the idea behind this is it will go through a dragon's den type approach. In other words, it'll be assessed. But any business that adopts the technical solution have to commit two things. One's financial support, but the other's mentoring. Mm. In other words, don't be building that feature. We, we don't need it or, you know, that type of thing to, to really help shape the products because, um, you know, the contact tracing app itself came out of this idea of has anybody ever used Bluetooth to actually collect information that you're, you know, mm. less than two meters apart? You know, I hadn't a clue, but we, we put it out to the industry and we find a company who were doing things in that space and they said we think this could this could work for you mm. and we tried it and um you know ireland was one of the first countries to start to say we believe we have a technical solution that works um we were also one of the first who suddenly thought people won't like this if it's very heavily bureaucratic and it's centralized and so on we were the one of the first to say Do you know we're gonna have to not do things in this application to get people to trust it. Um, and that was fine. We made those calls. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I don't know whether you remember, but, you know, there was over a million <laughs> downloads in, in just over a day. Um, mm. So people got very excited about it. It was the first time ever in my life as well I heard journalists actually say, we couldn't find any fault with this, the approach. <laughs> and a unique situation no doubt it was yeah there's probably people already now um as we as we speak googling about that competition where can they go to learn more about that uh if they they look up the press release they'll see the minister announcing it but um don't worry if they're in this sector um the actual announcement to the sector that part hasn't been announced yet but when it is there will be a press release go out and and we'll obviously make sure that sectoral representatives know about it you know we'll be telling isme and the ibex and the likes of you guys because um you know we, one of the things that i know my minister passionately believes in and i passionately believe in is you know it's absolutely wonderful that you can walk through dublin and you can see every big important company in the world and it's got a presence there but ultimately the the economic health of your country depends on indigenous capability being developed because those are the people that will stay and evolve and keep investing in the country and so you know it's really important for us to try and give those guys uh, helping hand as well. Plus one on that. And look, I think our, our very first episode of this video podcast series was with Leo Clancy to discuss that, um, the importance of helping Irish companies in yeah. the Web3 space and to kind of explain what the process is to help 
create awareness and also tips and tricks to help get funding from Enterprise Ireland themselves, but also from other entities. So, yeah, look, I think we're massive supporters of that uh, viewpoint. Um, and we need to drive stories out. You know, we, we all think, you know, there must be ways in which we can use IoT to protect older, vulnerable people. We all think, you know, there's there's ways in which we can use artificial intelligence in a really healthy, positive way. You know, you'll have ideas around blockchain and so on. Let's try them. Let's create the safe spaces where we can try them. Because one of the things, one of the things about Ireland that should be a huge advantage to us is everybody knows each other. And by and large, we have really good relationships between, I call it the quadruple matrix, the industry, academia, government and society itself. You know, um, people do trust the government, you know, to that it will try and do things responsibly and it will work with the industry and try and really take care and create something that's safe and does the right thing and all of those sorts of things. Um, and I think we can use that to our advantage. You know, we can learn together and, and, and grow together, you know. And um, I know in my role, one of, the, one of the things I've enjoyed most is the fact that, you know, I, I'm well known in the industry and I'm well known in academia and, and, and we do work well together, you know, and we enjoy working well together and we challenge each other. Um, and I don't mind being challenged, you know, we do our best, but we won't get it right all the time. Well, it's very reassuring to hear the level of activity that's there in terms of the pilots, the, the, the work that's being done, because as we have seen from many other examples, when a sort of a level of capability is achieved in something like a public service and then it's opened up, the private sector takes advantage and can build on services from there. And when it's coming from a trusted base, that trust carries through. And we, we've seen all sorts of developments from anything from the likes of GPS, it being opened up to mm -hmm. the private sector to build on it and how the, the services come from that. Uh, to be honest, I would see this as a similar infrastructural development that can be built upon and plugged into by the public sector to develop all sorts of services from it, but with that trust, with that privacy. So it's 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 very reassuring to hear all that. So thank you very much for uh, for bringing that level of detail into uh, into the conversation because I I think it's very good for the audience at large to know what's going on there and um, and to see the practicality that is being brought to it. So thanks very much, Laurie. Great. So two questions to finish, and these are easy. Um, so in terms of your favorite podcast or one that you'd like to recommend to our viewers and listeners, what would you go for? Uh, well, strangely, I don't listen to a lot of um, technical podcasts. I listen to your one. <laughs> <laughs> you have to say that. Well, thank you. Your curiosity, you know, <laughs> and and uh, every so often, you know, there'll be something on the TechFire website and it's a subject and I'll go in and listen to the podcast. But actually, what I really enjoy, I enjoy the, the rest is politics. Yeah. And uh, I've just got into, I think it's um, relatively you, the path to power the Matt Cooper, Ivan Yates one, because uh, I do enjoy those guys. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I tend to sort of 
Uh, I like history podcasts and and political podcasts and so on. I think when you're when you're on the train back to Malahide after a long day, I think you're teched out usually. <laughs> so you know, it's good to listen to something that's a bit different. Great, yeah. I think we had uh, Jerry Cross with us, and I think the rest of politics was on his list as well. Um, if people want to follow you, the work that you do, the work your department does, and learn more about it, where's the best place to go? Uh, well, gov.ie, but if you um, Google OGCIO as well, you'll find us within there. Um, and uh, yeah, and people can find me on LinkedIn. Super. A big thank you, Mr. Barry Lowry, for an, a really interesting conversation. Um, so thank you. Thanks very much. As we wrap up that episode, I think there were there were three things that really struck me. Um, and I'm going to have to read these out because I'll make sure uh, I want to get them right. So did you know that Ireland is the most trusted country in the OECD with public data based on a piece of research that was done actually in 2023? So recent uh, research. Secondly, the fastest growing country in the world for electronic ID adoption, right? I did not know either of these things. And then thirdly, and I think most relevant to Blockchain Ireland, is actually that the government is open to working with Web3. So, and we've talked about three specific examples there. One, in relation to ID. Two, we heard Barry talk about zero knowledge proofs, which we had John Woods from Algorand speaking about that not so long ago. Um, and then thirdly, the digital wallet for credentials. So. If you didn't believe it, it is happening um, and hopefully we'll hear from Barry again. So a big thank you to everybody for listening and watching us and we will see you again soon. Thank you.